Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Good morning. So funny. I have to let you in a couple secrets. You know, we video the the sermon, so when I wake up in the morning, I go, gosh, what did I wear last week? Because I don't want to wear the same thing, you know? So what I do is I go on the app, and I, like, look at last week's thing, and it goes, oh, okay, I wore that, and I go three weeks back, I'll go, okay, I can wear that again, because it's... What's interesting is that every time I say good morning, and I'm like, gosh, I say good morning a lot, but it is, it's a good morning in the Lord. Last night, I had the most incredible dream. I was sitting at the piano, and I was worshiping the Lord, and I was singing a song that I'd written about, Oh, Lord God, you're my father. And it built, it was one of those, like a movie scene, and I was worshiping, and then all these people started joining me. And then I went outside, and it was raining, and everyone was singing at the top of their lungs, and it was raining, and I just kept pointing to heaven. I go, okay. That was awesome because I look forward. You know, the thing about John the Baptist, he lost his head, but he gained heaven. I think we have to remember who we are. And, you know, there's a lot of hot topic discussions going on in our culture today. And there was a little girl who was talking to her teacher about climate change. And the teacher said, you know, this is the first human-caused climate change we've ever had. And the little girl said, no. What about the flood? And the teacher said, that didn't happen. That's impossible. So the little girl asked the teacher, okay, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Noah. And the teacher said, well, what if Noah went to hell? And the little girl said, then you ask him. Uh, That's... (laughs) That's how a lot of our conversations on social media are, right? These topics are at the forefront of discussion. They're hot-button topics. And depending on your worldview, what's a worldview? Is how you see the world, how you see yourself. That's how you make decisions. So as Christians, we should have a biblical worldview. And I don't say a Christian worldview because that's kind of nebulous. But a biblical worldview is a worldview based on what the Bible says about things. Today we're going to look at three hot topics that are being talked about, and everyone's an expert. But let's go to the expert with a capital E, and let's ask God about things like climate change, immigration, and socialism. We ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about these things, because we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, right? So let's talk about first, what does the Bible say about climate change? It's on your outline. And the question should be, how much is our fault? Because the climate changes, but the question always is, is it human-caused climate change? And it used to be global warming. Now it's climate change. If you use global warming, people get ticked. I don't understand this. But according to the United Nations, that's the source of this statement, okay? Climate change means a change of climate which is attributed directly or indirectly to human activity 
that alters the composition of the global atmosphere and which is in addition to natural climate variability observed over comparable time periods. Now here's the problem with that statement. Climate has only been recorded for 150 years. So if you're going to compare it to other activity, that's how much time you have, okay? Now, I don't have time to get into the details about all this, but let's ask what the Bible says. If the climate has changed, what does it mean? How much does it matter? And how much is our fault? And for that, we go to Scripture. We start off in the Olivet Discourse, which is where Jesus preached a sermon about the end times. In uh, Mark 13, verse 8, Jesus gives us insight. And he says, For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. That term birth pain could also be labor pains. The term in Scripture is often associated to the build-up to a time of judgment. Walter Wessel writes, The messianic kingdom is the kingdom to come where Jesus reigns on earth. And the kingdom must emerge from a period of suffering that was called the messianic woes or the birth pangs of the Messiah. This does not mean the woes that the Messiah must suffer, but the woes out of which the messianic age is to be born. This final hardship before the full establishment of God's kingdom on earth is building up as labor pains. And labor pains are painful, but then you give birth. And usually and all the time, if you love your kids, which I hope you do, it turns out good, right? So the labor pains are building up to something that's going to be new. Now, these labor pains will include strange weather phenomena. Jesus, again, gives us insight into his sermon. There will be signs. This is in Luke. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. So we see hurricanes. People say, these are the worst hurricanes we've ever had. We don't know that for sure. But we know that all this happening with the seas and the weather and the moon and the stars and the sun and all these different phenomena are part of this labor pain process. The labor pains will intensify until the second coming of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Matthew 24, 29 says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, and he's referring to the great tribulation, which is a time in the future, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, these birth pangs, when did they begin? They began thousands of years ago. In fact, they began right after the creation, and Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled against God, which caused the fall of mankind, but also the fall of creation. I'm not talking about the season, the fall, the fall. We now live in a fallen world because of sin. It was not started that way. Eden was perfect paradise. And one day we'll be there with God again. But this phenomena, these labor pains began way back then. In fact, Romans 8, 22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth Right up to the present time, this was written 2,000 years ago, so we're still in that time. 
Jesus, again, in his sermon, says something incredibly important that we need to understand. Read it with me. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what will pass away? Okay, this is a statement by our Lord Jesus Christ. He would know. Because one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, right? Now, here's the premise behind what's happening. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. NASB capitalizes him. Some think him is Adam, and some would say it's God. Now, we have to blame Adam and Eve and all human beings for causing this futility, which is the sin that entered the world. But God is the one who judges this. So he's the one that's subjecting by judgment, which is also known as the curse on the world. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he says he took upon him our curse, our sin. And in the new heaven and new earth, it literally says there's no more curse. So we're living in a cursed environment because of sin. So according to the Bible, is the climate changing? Yes. How much is our fault? It depends how you look at it. Adam brought sin into the world, and we're all sinners, and because of sin, the world is dying. Therefore, the climate change will continue as labor pains continue until there's no more. But nothing we do or don't do is going to change God's outcome. That's going to happen regardless. That does not mean we should not take care of God's creation. But the outcome is set. So Revelation 21, this is the new heaven and new earth. John, the apostle, he's writing, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is all going to die. Now here's the correlation between what's happening with creation and us as creation. We are in the same boat, per se, but we've been redeemed by Christ. So we are already made new, And one day our bodies will be new. Internally, we're new. We're a new creation. Guess what? The earth is groaning for that same redemption, and one day it will happen. That's how we should look at it. We should look at it with perspective, that what's going on isn't going to happen regardless of what we do or don't do. Okay? The next topic is immigration. Should nations have borders? Another hot topic, right? We live in a world where a lot of people believe that there shouldn't be borders, that we should have open borders. Question is, should we have nations? And then what constitutes a nation? Barack Obama actually said, I'm a citizen of the world. That's his worldview. You know, when I was 25, I was so blessed to become a citizen of the United States. And I waited in line, and I had to go through a process. I never forget standing up there and saying the Pledge of Allegiance with a lot of other people and pledging my allegiance to the United States of America, which is my nation. I wasn't born here. I was born in another nation, Jamaica. Others say that, you know, there's no such thing as an illegal alien. Now, the question is, does the Bible speak of nations? And what does the Bible say about nations? Did the nations have borders? Did the nations have walls? Yeah. There's a whole story about Jericho 
and the walls coming down. Israel has walls and gates to this day. All the nations that are named in the Bible were actually physical nations with land and borders, which were there for protection. So a border is like a boundary. And God gives us boundaries, right? Gives us commandments, gives us law. There's certain things that we should stay away from. There's certain things that we should do in glorifying Him. These are boundaries. Our homes have boundaries, usually. And what are they there for? They're there to show what part of the property is ours. And we have doors that we lock. And we do that not because we hate the people outside our doors, but we love the people inside our doors. This is a family. The next door is a family. The next door is a family. And nations can be seen as families in the Bible. So what is a nation? The first mention of nations in the Bible is in Genesis 10. In Genesis 10, so this is early on, it says, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each was his own language by their clans and their nations. Lands, the Hebrew word aretzim, is a geographical territory. Language, lashon, is the spoken language of that nation, a dialect. Clans, mishpahot, is a group with blood or family ties. Nations, goyim, in Hebrew, is a broader term for a grouping which incorporates a population with language, genetic ties, government, usually a land of their own, which would include a border mostly for protection. Now, in Genesis 11, we see something that the nations try to do. They try to unify together as one nation. You remember this? What did they try and build? A tower together, right? In Genesis 11, we read... Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Now notice the, how the many ourselves and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now here's the problem and that kind of is what is going on today where people say, let's unify together without borders and have a utopian society with one government. But here's the problem with this particular scenario in Genesis 11, it went against God's plan for his world. And what do I mean by that? Very first chapter of Genesis, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And again in Genesis 9, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth and multiply in it. So the utopian city of Babel was built so that people would avoid being dispersed over the earth. So guess what God does? He doesn't like that plan. So he shows up. He says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. God's plan goes forth, ladies and gentlemen, whether we want it or not. And the intervention of God to multiply languages and nations was a means to fulfill the original design for humanity, which was to fill the earth with people made of his image. Acts 17 is a great couple of verses here that we kind of skip over. Paul is saying, from one man, he's preaching to people. He's saying, from one man, which is Adam, God made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now look at this, how sovereign God is. 
And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now, verse 27 is incredible. Why did God do this? So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him because he's not far from any of us. So according to this verse and this passage, God has a redemptive purpose for nations. He marks out the boundaries he appointed where you live currently. Don't forget that part. Why? Why do people live in certain places? The answer is so that they would reach out and seek God. God has marked boundaries and placed people within them for his purpose. And here's the thing, in the end, when all the believers are in heaven, praising God in Revelation, what do we find? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. This is how God set up this society. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robe, with palm branches in their hands, it's only in the new creation that this utopian type of society will flourish. Why? Because everyone in this passage is under the authority and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a theocracy. And that's the church. And the church is called a nation, filled with all different people, different languages, and this and that. We are like a nation. Our land is in heaven. Now, I think we need to understand this. It's true that a lot of evil has come to the world through nations fighting each other, right? Because of selfish human desire. But think about this. How much worse would it be if humans were united in their evil with full worldwide power? Dr. John Taylor, who's my professor and the head of the PhD program at I read this article, blew my mind. But here's just a quote from it. The existence of nations then is at one level a response to human sin, limiting the negative potential of united human evil in the world in a similar way to the reducing of lifespans described in Genesis 6-3 reduces the time span in which sinful humans can do harm. Think about this. What if Hitler lived as long as Methuselah? 969 years of Hitler. Do you see why there's boundaries? Do you see why there's a lifespan? Thank God. Open borders don't work because sin would just take over. And God has borders and boundaries so that people within them will seek Him and hopefully come to faith in Him. And there will come a time when the world will be under a one-world leader. And that is when sin will escalate to the point where the labor pains will go more and more and more, and then the new will be born in the second coming Christ. Then the third hot topic is social justice. Does socialism work? People might say, you know, with so much money in the world, why are there still poor people? Or they'll knock a certain type of economy. Capitalism works for rich people. You know, people say income equality needs to happen because we shouldn't have people who are here and some other people who are here. Everyone should be able to live happily and free. The first thing we need to understand is Jesus spoke specifically about poverty, and he says something astounding. He says, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. We should, but 
he says, the poor will always be with you. Again, people live in certain places so that they might seek God. The problem is when other people in authority try to be God. Contrary to some who believe poverty should not exist in an enlightened world, Jesus obviously thinks otherwise. And we should help the poor and the needy. This is something that really stirs in me because I think, and this should never happen in the church, but it is, because the church is not being taught the proper way to look at God's kingdom in eschatology, which is the study of end times. When you think of the kingdom of God, and I've spoken about this, we know that there's portions that have arrived, like forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the church, believers under the authority of Jesus Christ. These things have come. But there's things that still haven't happened, like the messianic reign of Jesus Christ. And here's where people get confused. Well, if the kingdom of God has arrived, then why are things still messed up? Well, it hasn't arrived in its fullness. We have the kingdom of God living in us, Because Jesus lives in us, and when we're together, there's force and numbers, and we can make a difference. But it's not until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on earth that we'll have any sense of unity and peace under one authority. So that misunderstanding of what's known as over-realized eschatology, in other words, people are thinking certain things about the kingdom of God that aren't happening yet. In fact, let's think of this. Where's Jesus currently? And he's seated where? And what's he doing? Interceding, Interceding, right? Is he still king? Is he coming back and he's going to judge the world? Okay, currently he's acting as high priest, but he's still king. And currently, as Peter says, God wants no one to perish, but all to come to repentance. And he's waiting patiently for this to happen. Because he wants no one to be left out of the kingdom of God. And here's the other part of it. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Because we look at John the Baptist, we'll talk about him in a minute. But when we tell the truth, we will be persecuted. Now, there's two types of gospels that preach this type of social justice belief. One is the prosperity gospel, and the other is called the liberation theology. Now, just this last week, Benny Hinn is renouncing the prosperity gospel. You know who Benny Hinn is? He's one of those guys that stands up there, and he has like a healing ministry. And if you aren't healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's part of what the prosperity gospel teaches. But he says, he actually says this, quote, Today, sadly, among a lot of circles, all you hear is how to build the flesh. It's a feel-good message. It's about feeling good. It's about making money. And I'm sorry to say prosperity has gone a little crazy and I'm correcting my own theology. He says it's an offense to the Lord and it's offense to the Holy Spirit. There should not be a price on the gospel. He says giving has become such a gimmick. It's making me sick to my stomach and I've been sick for a while, he says. He says, I don't want to get to heaven and be rebuked. I think it's time we say it like it is. The gospel is not for sale. The article went on, he's not the first high-profile televangelist to change their tune about prosperity or word of faith theology. Earlier this year, Joyce Meyer told viewers, 
I'm glad for what I learned about prosperity, but it got out of balance. I'm glad for what I learned about faith, but it got out of balance. Every time someone had problems, it was because they didn't have enough faith. If you got sick, you didn't have enough faith. If your child died, you didn't have enough faith. Well, that's not right. If you're poor, you don't have enough faith. That's that kind of gospel, which is not this gospel. Because Jesus said, you will be persecuted. You will always have the poor with you. And we associate with Jesus in suffering. Now, the other one that I mentioned is the liberation theology, which is the social justice gospel. And it started around 1950 in South America by a Peruvian Roman Catholic priest named Gustavo Guterres. And his theology was a mixture of Christian theology, but mainly Roman Catholicism and Marxism, communism. And it emphasizes a social concern for the poor and political liberation for oppressed people, especially economic justice, poverty, and human rights. And it was an attempt to revert back to what the early church was experiencing. And we see this in Acts 2. This is the very beginning of the church. It says, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That sounds like socialism, right? Now here's the difference between what happened in the early church and what happened through Guterres and the liberation theology movement. The early church happened naturally and organic. Liberation theology was coerced and forced. The early church was under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, and liberation theology was under the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church and the local government working together. The early church was united in mind. They were all believers, equally yoked, who wanted to glorify God, Liberation theology was a mixture of people with different theological beliefs and mixed with personal motives. Now, if you want perfect socialism and communism, it should be found in the church. But here's the thing. The reason it works, or supposed to work, is because we are under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a theocracy. That's different than nations who are not a theocracy, they're not under the lordship of Jesus Christ, trying to force and coerce this type of government and economy. The early church, by the way, they also took care of problem people. We see in the early church, Aeneas and Sapphira, who held back after they said they were going to give. And what happened to them? God killed them. And God was protecting his church because it was just being born. But that also should be happening when there's people who are not living under the authority of God and under the authority of the local church. We have discipline problems, and they should be taken care of. Because that's the only way that something like this truly works. But here's the other part of it. At the core of Marxism is a belief that human beings are innately good and that left to your own vice and your own humanism, You will naturally give away your possessions, and you'll share with others without compulsion. Is that true? What does the Bible say about human beings? There's no one good. I mean, you can see it in a two-year-old. They're not sharing their stuff. 
This belief that all of a sudden, a nation that has pushed God out of everything, all of a sudden we're going to be living like we're godly. Ain't going to happen. It never worked, and it never will work, at least in this world, mainly because of sin and the unequally yoked heart. The Bible says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Nations are not like the church. The church is made up of like-minded believers, hopefully, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Nations are a mixture of people with different beliefs and are mainly humanistic in their thought and practice. Now, like I said, the church is a nation, but our land is in heaven, and we're under his lordship, and we're looking forward to his second coming, where the whole world will be under his lordship. Is it right to take care of people who are in need? Of course. But where should this be coming from? The church. We've handed a lot of this over. We've kind of not been doing our job. So someone's trying to step in, which is the government. You know, the vision of our community center is the exact thing that God has called us to be. And we're not going to wait till we have land. One day we will. But we got to start now. We're going to be living the gospel, which is helping the poor and the needy, but because we love God and we love people, not because we're being forced and coerced. There's a difference. Now let's find ourselves in the story. You heard the story about John the Baptist. He's a truth teller. What happened to him? Going out of my head over you. Remember that song? John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. He was the last and greatest Old Testament prophet. And he was endowed with the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1.17 says. You remember the song? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. I think that's great, but I think it should be what the world needs now is truth, sweet truth. Because people are confused. We shouldn't be confused. So how do we deal with societal problems? Number one, we got to speak the truth. we got to speak the truth. And we can't be afraid of what people think about us. We should be afraid of what God thinks about us. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I love what Billy Graham said. He said, Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. They will persecute you. Peter writes, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. Give an answer that could give a defense. You know what the word there in Greek? Apologia which we get the word apologetics. Apologia is to speak on behalf of oneself or of others against accusations presumed to be false, defend oneself. But we're not defending ourselves; We're defending the gospel, which is defending the Lord. The truth heals when it's defended. Too many Christians these days, I'm sad to say, are wimping out on this. And this gentleness and humility thing, gentleness and respect, which can be humility and reverence or fear, we should always approach apologia with humility and respect for God and human dignity. But we should never water down the message. 
Because in speaking the truth, we will grow and mature. Ephesians 4 says, Paul's writing to the church, he says, and we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and the deceitful scheming. We see a lot of that today, false prophets, politicians, people trying to step in and speak their truth. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ in love. Here's the thing that we need to dispel. Because if you love someone, you will speak the truth and you won't water it down and you won't hold back. You wouldn't do that with your kids. Oh yeah, go run on the streets. Okay, you might hit, get hit, you might not. It's your truth. You know, whatever. Why do we do that with people? Because we're afraid what they're going to think about us? If I hold back the truth, guess what? I am holding back my love for that person. We need to be like John, who's a truth teller. And so the next thing is going to happen is you're going to offend the world. You're going to offend the world. I'm tired of hearing all these people go back and forth and they're not saying anything. Say something offensive at least. Get someone's attention. A few weeks ago I said the gospel is offensive and someone got offended. <laughs> I go, yeah, it is offensive. Why is it offensive? Because the gospel is good news, but it's only good news to people who believe and receive it. Was John the Baptist afraid to speak the truth? Was he afraid of offending people? No, I didn't even care what his wardrobe looked like. I feel bad now looking and seeing what shirt I wore. I should just come in whatever it is, like wake up in the morning and just show up and eat like locusts and stuff. Because <laughs> I'd lose weight. John the Baptist was not afraid of speaking the truth, and he offended people. You know who he offended? The king, who really wasn't the king Herod. He was like a figurehead. He was called a tetrarch because the people didn't even want to call him king because he was horrible. And so he was like a figurehead of the head of Galilee, kind of. So it says, for Herod himself had John arrested and bound in prison on the account of Herodias. Do you know who Herodias was? Not only the wife of his brother, but he was also Herod's niece. So he married his niece. So he married this woman. And John goes, that's not right. If John had like, maybe he should have a board of directors that tell him, you know, you need to be a little less harsh. You know, be more politically correct. You know, you're going to get in trouble, dude. He says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Where'd you get? Leviticus 18.16 is extremely clear on this. Do not marry your brother's wife. So what happened? Herodias, the woman, gets a grudge against John and wants him killed. But Herod was afraid of John. Kind of like the Pontius Pilate thing with Jesus and Pontius' wife. Don't cause him any harm. Something different about that guy. He says, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Wouldn't you like to be set about you that? Man, that guy's offensive, but you know, you've got to listen to what he says. Uh, it's, it makes kind of sense. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was perplexed. He couldn't understand because his eyes weren't open. But he used to enjoy listening to John. Calvin, I like what he writes about. He says, We behold in John an illustrious example of that moral courage which all pious teachers ought to possess, not to hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and powerful as often as it may be found necessary. 
For he with whom there is acceptance of persons does not honestly serve God. There's a battle. I found this saying. I don't know who wrote it. Sin thrives in an environment of darkness, lies and secrets. Thus, for all its fearsome appearance, the kingdom of evil is structurally very weak. You turn on the light and the cockroaches scramble to go under the refrigerator, pull one string and the whole thing unravels. So that's what John did. He brings the sin into the light. In fact, Jesus said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. He's the light. But people love darkness so because they like to hide their dirty deeds. So when you bring sin into the light by speaking the truth, you're going to offend someone. Jesus offended people, I'm sure, with this statement. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace. He will one day. But a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me because Jesus has to be all in all. Has to be all about him first. And then everything falls in line. And Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus and his gospel. The next thing, when you're a truth teller, be prepared to die. One of my favorite scenes, Montigo Montoya. (laughs) Prepare to die. You killed my father, prepare to die. It's just a mere flesh wound. We are in the Lord's army. Do you know this? We chose to enlist. And like anyone who enlists in the military or is a first responder, they know that they go into harm's way for the behalf of other people and the benefit of other people. We can't wimp out on this. Jesus says, in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. We see this all over the place today. Bakers are forced to bake a cake. Preachers water down their messages to not defend people. Christian organizations are banned from social media. Believers killed because of their faith. We knew this would happen. Shouldn't be a surprise. Dwight Eisenhower, who was the general on D-Day, he said this on June 6, 1944. He said, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained well-equipped and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year, 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 through 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the German great defeats and open battle man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and have placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Then he goes on and says, good luck. But then he ends with this, 
And let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Church, every day is D-Day. Someone's ready to make a decision. And we need to be truth-tellers. And the only way it's going to happen is if we're willing to die to ourselves. Are you willing to die to yourself, no matter what happens, so that the gospel can go forth in power, in victory, I am. I don't like playing games. No matter what game it is, I'm not a big game player. But when it comes to the gospel, I'm seriously not into playing games. I'm sure if I watered down the truth a little bit, we'd get a few more people in here. And then watered it down a little more, we'd get a few more people in here. But let's not water down the truth. Let's stand up for the truth and get more people in here. How does that sound? Right? Okay. We are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is our God, and he's coming back soon. Let's take as many people with us to heaven as we can. Okay? All right. Yes, let's clap for the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can come and be part of your enlisted army. The enemy is constantly trying to attack and lie and deceive, but we need to see things as they are according to your word, which is true. And we need to be truth tellers, no matter if we get our head cut off, because the time is short, the labor pains are increasing, and we won't want anyone left out from hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in his his name we pray. Amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you visit if you're in the area. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegateoc.com.